Good afternoon, my friends. The doctor is in the house. Happy Wednesday. Welcome back to another episode of To Your Health with Dr. G. Oh, man. Today's show is going to be fierce as usual. Check it out today. Did I do a good job with that? Uh, welcome back, everybody, to To Your Health with Dr. G. Today's show, Sawing Logs. That was my demonstration. Sawing Logs, that snoring show. I tell you what. I'm so excited to talk about this topic. Those of you that have been following me on social media this week, you know we've been promoting this show like crazy. Hey, we all know somebody who snores. And I, admit, I admitted on social media the other day that I'm a snorer, although I think my wife would hopefully say that I get, I'm better at it and doing it less. Uh, but we all know about snoring, but we got to talk about it. It's such a common thing, so we're going to break it down today on snoring. And again, I'm so excited to have everybody back here. You're going to meet my friend and colleague, Dr. Stephen Kreisman in just a few moments, but welcome back to Two Year Health with Dr. G on this great day. You know, this health revolution is going strong. Again, this show always, always has and always will be about you, making sure that you have access, make sure you have equity, make sure you really have the tools to be successful with your health and your well-being. Remember, as you have success in your health, you're more than likely to have opportunities for success in your life. So thanks for joining me back here today. Check me out on my website, www.drmarkgomez.com. You're joining us here live on Facebook. We're also at Intellectual Radio Studios in Westchester. We have a great day today. It's such an awesome topic. Again, we can all relate to the theme of snoring. But we're going to break it down today. We're going to break it down about what is snoring. We're going to talk about the, 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 the physiology or even the pathophysiology. We're going to talk about why it happens. We're also going to get into some of the things, the, your common questions answered. And i got a great list of, of questions that have been submitted to really uh, about what we're going to do today. And so I'm so excited to have this show today. We're going to just break it down. And again, <sighs> That's snoring, hey. But some people probably snore louder than me out there and everything, too. So it's going to be great. So welcome back. So um, before we get into the show, of course, I want to hit you with a quick disclaimer. But again, the best thing that you can do today, and I'm going to read that disclaimer in a few moments, the best thing that you can do today is share this show. If you're excited about your health, if you have a pulse about your health, a pulse about your loved one, again, the best thing that we can do today is to keep this conversation going on strong. You know, my, 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 my colleague, Dr. Kreisman, and I were passionate about what we do, but it takes two to tango. I want you to have that passion, that mental state, that mindset to continue to create opportunity and success in your health. And we don't do that without actually being active participants. As my pastor says, smart people take notes. So I want you to take some notes out there and go ahead. If you have any questions at all, you can shoot it at me on Facebook. I'm live on Facebook right now. I might get to some questions. I have some questions, of course, that I want to get to myself to really set the tone for everything today. But again, we're all about sharing opportunity and access. So wonderful. So thanks again for joining us. Here we go. I'm going to hit you with a quick disclaimer, as always. The content of To Your Health with Dr. G is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and that the content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Further details can be found at www.toyourhealthwithdrg.com slash disclaimer. So here we are today, talking about snoring. And the statistics are pretty, pretty darn interesting. But according to the National Sleep Foundation, snoring affects approximately 90 million American adults and 37 million on a regular basis. So I'm gonna break it down because again, we all know someone, you out there might be a snorer. It's, it's true, can't deny it. Uh, but, or your bed partner might snore. So we're gonna talk about some of those dynamics and everything, so I just cannot wait to get more granular into this with you. So let me introduce my guest. Hey, uh, I gotta tell you a little bit of a story real quick. Uh, my, uh, Dr. Kreisman and I were at Loyola together. We've known each other for a long time. Great friend, great friend of mine, great colleague. 
has seen a ton of my patients. Uh, he has been on To Your Health with Dr. G before in the past. And uh, when I came up with this topic for the show, I go, I know I, I, I got to get Dr. Kraisman on the show so he can break down snoring for you and talk about the opportunities that are out there to reduce the burden of snoring. So awesome. So let me introduce my good friend. Let me read his credentials because his credentials run deep. My good friend and colleague, Dr. Stephen J. Kraisman. He's a board-certified otolaryngologist with Drs. Gurgis and Associates. Check him out www.gurgisent.com. Dr. Kraisman, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Dr. G. I'm great. glad to be here. Hey, I'm so excited to have you back on the show. Why don't we start by just uh, talking about you. Tell us a little bit about your background, uh, where you're from. Of course, you can mention how we met at Loyola. Uh, talk about where you did your uh, residency training. And then a few opening comments about what snoring means to you as you see patients in your clinical practice. Sure, I'd be happy to. So. I'm a local guy, I grew up in Naperville, uh, went to the public schools there, did my undergraduate training at Hope College in Holland, Michigan, and then uh, did my medical school at Loyola University in Maywood, which is where I crossed paths with Dr. G. We yes. were there at the same time. Awesome. It's hard to believe, it was about 20 years ago. <laughs> I know, this is crazy. We've yeah. gotten older. That's all right, though. A little bit. A little, a little, a little wiser, I'd like to think. Uh, amen, brother. Keep going. So uh, I stuck around. I did a year of general surgery training at Loyola University Medical Center prior to going to Pennsylvania to do five years of otolaryngology, head and neck surgery training, uh, which is ENT, your nose and throat. Uh, and then I've been back practicing in the suburbs of Chicago uh, since 2011. Currently, I'm at Gergeson Associates ENT, based out of Hinsdale with offices in LaGrange as well, serving a broad area. Uh, I'm what's called a general uh, otolaryngologist, which means that I treat children and adults of all ages with the full range of ENT issues. Um, and the nice thing about ENT is that we have quite a few patients that are, are medical patients, uh, and then quite a few patients that will at some point need some sort of surgery. And the diseases that we evaluate and treat are, are pretty broad in nature, uh, which keeps it interesting. Um, but yeah, I do have a particular interest in, in sleep medicine, which is why I think you gave me the call. And <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's something I frequently talk to patients about, friends about, family about. Uh, I think I share your passion for health and medical knowledge and uh, general health knowledge among the general population. And uh, I'm happy to be here to share the, the few things I know about it, see if we can educate people, clarify some myths and facts, and have fun doing it. And maybe make a few more sounds of snoring, I'm just joking. Hey, but it's been great, Dr. Kraisman, I'm so excited for you to be here. So you met Dr. Kraisman, and again, he and I go, we were just longtime friends and colleagues, and so I'm just grateful for you to be here and help us break down this very common topic. And it's something, this, this snoring show, I wanted to do this a long time ago, but just things kind of happen for a reason. I'm glad they're happening today, and that's the most important thing out there for everybody. So now that you guys met Dr. Kraisman, we got the topic, I want to basically talk about really what we're going to get into today. Again, I said a few moments ago, we're talking about snoring in a little more detail. We're going to get into some commonly asked questions, and certainly we're always going to get into our myths versus facts. So let's start this way. You know, when people come into our office, we call that the chief complaint. And the chief complaint for those of you out there is when somebody comes into the see their physician and they, they're there for a particular reason. And so the chief complaint, like, or, or as I like to call it, the question of the hour is, what are the latest updates in snoring prevention, diagnosis, and treatment? So there we go. So let's talk about this. Dr. Kraisman, why don't you just break it down in simple terms what snoring is? Because we all heard snoring. A lot of us snore, as we know, according to the statistics. But, but what is snoring in general? What is happening in the process when somebody snores? 
That's a great question. So the first thing we need to do is define our terms and define the problems so we can have a, a meaningful discussion about that. So everyone knows what snoring is. You know, there's, there's no secret about that. But if you, if you ask somebody off the street to describe what snoring is rather than demonstrate, they might have a little harder time doing so. And worse yet, to describe what's going on physically to lead to that sound gets even harder. Uh, and then to then further delineate where does snoring end and things like sleep apnea begin. So we've got to define some terms. So snoring at its root, the definition of snoring is an audible noise caused by the upper airway uh, due to increased airway resistance and therefore collapse of the structures that vibrate together and make that sound. So that's kind of a lot to wrap your head around, but you know, let me dig a little deeper here. When I talk about the upper airway, what I'm referring to is anywhere from the nose and the lips down to the voice box. We call that the upper airway. Below that, the trachea, the lungs, we call that the lower airway. That's not the issue here. So it's a breathing problem, it's an airway issue, but it's one of the upper airway, which is where I come into the picture as an ear, nose, and throat doctor, because anatomically, those are the areas I evaluate and treat. So what happens uh, with snoring is that when our bodies relax during sleep, the musculature relaxes, and that's normally has a resting tone that, that keeps the airway open when we're up uh, and, and doing our activities. But when you relax, then those muscles relax and the soft tissue kind of collapses, sort of like a balloon deflating. And when some of those surfaces then get very close to each other, the air cannot flow very readily. So that's airway resistance. The air is meeting resistance to flow, which then leads to taking a deeper breath to move the air, which causes collapse of that tissue, and it vibrates against each other and it makes a noise. Usually with inspiration, but it can occur in rare circumstances with exhalation as well. Um, so just the noise itself, the vibratory noise from the tissue vibrating, collapsing and vibrating on itself is, is snoring. Wonderful. Well, thanks for breaking that down. You know, I always tell people this, you know, snoring does not discriminate. Uh, all ages, um, both sexes, um, kids all the way up to the elderly, and it's a common problem. Of course, we all, we all talk about it, but I think the thing is, a lot of us may think that snoring may be benign, and it may be in some certain cir circumstances, uh, but we think about the other ex the extreme, you and I always think about it, could somebody have obstructive sleep apnea, and we'll get into that in a few moments. But uh, let's talk about some common situations where you might find in, where people might have kind of a benign or more of a physiologic snoring, and they're not really worried about anything. Uh, are there any kind of situations that are like that? Well, definitely. I mean, snoring is, you know, is very common. Uh, probably everyone on the planet at some point or another will, <laughs> will, will snore. If it's just isolated snoring without pauses in the breathing or significant decrease in the airflow, we, we call that primary snoring. Uh, and that in and of itself is not necessarily a medical issue. It can be a social issue. You know, your, your roommate, your spouse, your friends, your family might not appreciate the noise you're making while it's happening. Um, but there's very few negative health consequences to primary snoring, with one glaring exception. And that's an association that's been made between hardening of the arteries in the neck, the carotid arteries, the medical term for that is atherosclerosis, and primary snoring. 
one of the theories on that is just the vibration that occurs in the throat could be enough in people over time to cause some mechanical trauma to those arteries resulting in inflammation and thus hardening of them. And so there is a potential link. But primary snoring without sleep apnea is not known to be directly correlated to things like heart, heart disease and cerebrovascular disease. Excellent. But sleep apnea, on the other hand, is, and we'll get into that in yeah. pretty good detail. Let me ask you this. I think of some other kind of common scenarios. And by the way, I like to use, uh, I like to use, my wife likes to use the term, I gave you a love tap. Uh, and, <laughs> and I think when, when you say about, uh, you know, uh, people uh, are having these kind of situations and your partner may not notice it, your roommate or your bed partner, but we know that the reality is that that can disrupt a lot of their sleep too. And so when you talk about, about fragmentation, uh, of sleep, that's something that we have to really talk about. Uh, one of the things that we talk about in lifestyle medicine is we want people to sleep seven to nine hours uh, on night, a night. And if that sleep is broken up because you're, you're snoring or, or your, your snoring is affecting your bed partner, it detracts a bit from their way of getting restorative sleep. And we know that the lack of sleep has an effect on every system in the body. And I talked about this with my good friend, Dr. Juan Flores, on that sleeping show that I did back in October 2019. Uh, let's talk about some other common scenarios. So say like somebody goes out and has a cocktail um, at nighttime and they go to a party, uh, or if somebody takes like uh, a sleeping pill, you know, are you gonna see, or somebody successfully tired, are you gonna see more snoring in those kind of situations, Dr. Kreisman? Yeah, definitely, um, for most people, I should say. Okay. So anything that further relaxes the muscles, you know, being really wiped out tired, having had a drink before bed, taking a sedative, those things can cause extra additional relaxation, if you will, of that musculature and the tone of that, those airway muscles. And that could lead to collapse that doesn't normally occur on a nightly basis. So that's the, the sometimes snorers. Uh, another good example is uh, somebody that has a cold or a sinus infection, okay. and they've got a stuffy nose. That stuffy nose is causing resistance to airflow, which could lead that person to have to take a deeper breath when they're sleeping, and that could lead to snoring that they don't normally have. So that's, those are some of the reasons why people can be sometimes snorers. The people that, you know, medically we try to key in on are the people that are every night snorers. And a lot of people, I'm sure you've experienced this, will deny it up and down in the office in part because they're sleeping. They don't necessarily know that they're snoring. So a lot of times for confirmation or identification of chronic snores, we have to rely on, on bed partners and family and that sort of thing. Correct. You know, it's interesting, I think about my, my patients that are single in my practice, and, I, and one of the questions that I ask them when I, when I do a physical, when their annual physical, and quick plug on make sure you get your annual physical, I talk about that all the time with your primary care doctor. They will be there for you to save you at the end of the day. Uh, but one of the things that I talk about a lot is, do you snore? And a lot of times for my single people, their answer is, I don't know, I'm single. Uh, and so it's always a hard thing to kind of tease that out more, same way to ask some more kind of questions. So let me ask you this, Dr. Kreisman, uh, what are some common symptoms that somebody may actually be a snorer? Well, that's a good question. Um, so people that wake up frequently potentially could be a snorer. That might speak to more problematic issues with sleep, like sleep apnea, but that, that alone could be a symptom. Uh, a lot of people uh, may wake up with a sore throat in the morning as a result of that soft tissue kind of flopping around and causing some trauma to the throat. Uh, people waking up 
chronically, uh, you know, every night or uh, in the morning with, with a dry throat might be another sign that they're breathing through the mouth, snoring because they can't breathe through their nose. So those are some of the things one could, could look for other than secondhand reports of audible snoring. You know, one of the things I always kind of think, even in a primary care perspective, I always talk about with patients, sometimes I'll see, you know, when they're not sleeping, you know, obviously waking up unrefreshed and everything like that. You know, I always talk about like, have you gained weight? Do you have any headaches? And these are things that I ask from a primary care standpoint. Um, I love that thing about awakening. They're, not, they're awakening multiple times in the middle of the night. That could be a sign as well, too. So I love how you've laid out some good symptoms that are out there. Um, and then I think about just from a daytime function, because we've all been there where we don't get enough sleep, whether or not we snort or not. But I think about, you know, if your concentration's off or you have some memory challenges or some lack of attention to detail, you know, it may indicate your, your snore, but it may indicate something else. And, and even as Dr. Chris and I are breaking this down, you know, sometimes... Uh, as clinicians, the challenge part, the challenging part is to find out uh, at least uh, um, what else could be causing certain things. From a primary care standpoint, my challenge is, is there's so many things that can cause some tiredness and fatigue and things like that. But I like how for you, when they kind of come into you, you know, you can really hone in on some of the things that you do great. So awesome. So let me ask you this question, Dr. Kreisman. Uh What are some other risk factors? Well, well, let me take a step back. I said snoring does not discriminate uh, a few moments ago. Mm -hmm. Do we know any statistics? Is it more men, more women? Do you see more older people that snore? Is it younger people? Is it more people that are overweight or people that have normal body mass index? What are some of those kind of breakdowns just kind of set the tone here? Well, in terms of snoring stats, um, some of the numbers say that as many as uh, around 44 to 50 percent of males uh, may be chronic snorers and just around a third of, of females. And that's the numbers on that really are for the age bracket from 30 to 60 um, in, in that kind of range. Um, but it's a fairly significant proportion of the population, so we always have to be kind of hunting for that or screening for that. There's other anatomic characteristics that might, you know, signal that somebody could be a, a, a snorer, uh, in, in, you know, as opposed to somebody else. And those are the kind of things that you and I are probably screening for when we're doing a physical exam, uh, examples of that would be excess weight. There's a pretty good correlation between extra weight and snoring. Um, also, just the anatomy. There you know, are many people that have a smaller jaw relative to the rest of the face. That jaw might be set back a little. We call that retrusion. Uh, and that could push the tongue and, and some of the musculature back to narrow the airway and cause snoring. Um, and then when I'm doing a routine ENT physical exam, I'm looking for things like septal deviation, allergic inflammation of the nose, big tonsils, long soft palate, you know, kind of digging down for other things that might contribute to or predispose somebody to snoring. Excellent. Let me ask you this question, Dr. Graceman. You know, so say you're examining somebody, and this might help clarify for people out there. So say they want to come to your office and see a board-certified ear, nose, and throat physician. Um, what, are the, what are they kind of expecting? They're coming and saying, I'm, I'm a snorer. How do you go about looking for those certain things? Are there any diagnostics that are out there or any bedside techniques that you're using to further kind of narrow down how you're going to eventually develop a treatment plan? Right. So initially it's usually self-reported or probably more commonly bed partner reported. A lot of people that come in for evaluation of snoring are usually accompanied by a somewhat disgruntled looking spouse or partner. What? Um, <laughs> sure, I'm sure you never see that. I know, yeah. It's like, what, what, what? But then, you know, the evaluation really hinges on determining who's a primary snoring, which is a nuisance with very little health risk, versus who has obstructive sleep apnea, 
which is a really significant uh, medical condition that has many health implications uh, in just about every organ system in the in the body. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of where I start is is to start asking some screening questions to try to elicit who's a snorer and who may have sleep apnea. Okay. Um, and I'll I'll give you some examples Please. of some of that screening, but Please. beyond that. Uh, we can do some additional testing, which usually involves a, a sleep study, okay. and many people are reluctant to do that. But we'll we'll get into that yeah. in a little. Well, bit. let's let's uh, yeah, we're going to come back to that one because I think it's important to know for people out there to know the different tests that are out there, but also what to expect. Again, we're talking about taking advantage of an opportunity here. Uh, I was at a networking meeting this morning in Plainfield, and I uh, set up and introduced myself to the group, and I asked the question. I go, raise your hand if you snore, and I said, be honest. Of course, I'm a physician. Got to be honest with the doc. Uh, and so I said, raise your hand. And so uh, there's a room about 25 people, and probably about 90% of them raised their hand. And then I said, uh, truthfully, of course, their hands are still up. And then I said, all right, how many of you know that there are treatment strategies out there for snoring to reduce and or eliminate snoring burden? And maybe only about half the people raised their hand. So, so I, I still think us as clinicians, as physicians, we still have some more work to do on educating the general public and saying, listen, Yes, you snore, but you don't have to necessarily. There are things that can be done about it versus people kind of saying, well, I just snore, so it's just going to be like that. And my wife is just uh, she's going to live with that snoring, and it is what it is. And people go on not knowing that they might be at risk for sleep apnea or other kind of downstream health burdens uh, certainly related to uh, snoring and unrepressed sleep. Uh, so how do you kind of, let me ask you just more of a broader question. How do you kind of get people to say, you know, we're here to create opportunity for people and want people to take their health seriously. So how do we create that urgency? And maybe it is like you said, they're brought in because the bed partner brings them in, but, but, but we don't want people to sit on something, especially if it's sleep apnea, correct? Oh, absolutely. And so, yeah, a lot of times the, the driving factor, the impetus behind a visit is the nuisance of snoring. It's just the sound, but really that, for a lot of people, is the tip of the iceberg. And it's that obstructive sleep apnea with the many health consequences that we're really trying to, trying to dig for. And that can be a difficult conversation to have in a brief period of time because there's so many potential implications. But for many people, you know, I, I try to highlight the importance really by, by sharing some t statistics and then some pathophysiology, meaning this is what happens during untreated sleep apnea, and these are the potential consequences, and this is why it's dangerous. And usually, you know, by the end of that conversation, most people understand that it's a big deal uh, and are kind of on board with figuring out whether or not they have that. Right. Let's, let's go right into that. Let's, let's pick back into that. Can you just give us a, just a brief overview of sleep apnea? People hear the term, but they might not be necessarily understanding it. What, it, what is it? Um, and then, essentially, what is a sleep study? Sure. Let me get into that. So... You can think of sleep apnea as being on a continuum with snoring. So as I mentioned before, snoring is a, a, a vibratory-induced noise that is the result of increased airway resistance. If you take that one step further and you increase the resistance to airflow, meaning you decrease the airflow, then at some point it's going to be so difficult to breathe. Somebody might have breathing that's too shallow. We call that a hypopnea. Yeah. Or they might have pauses in their breathing. We call that an apnea. So the definition medically of obstructive sleep apnea is somebody that snores, has fatigue and daytime symptoms, and has a combination of those events, either 
diminished breathing, hypopnea, or cessation of breathing, apnea, more than five times an hour on average. We call that the apnea hypopnea yeah. index. Uh, and that's what really defines obstructive sleep apnea. You really can only tell that with a sleep study. So if I see somebody for snoring, we've done some screening, we've asked about some of the, some of the potential symptoms of sleep apnea, which by the way, some of those would be frequent awakening during the night, mm -hmm. headaches in the morning, excessive fatigue during the day that can't be explained by other reasons, sometimes excessive weight gain, memory loss, decreased libido, all sorts of things. Those are kind of some of the screening questions. And, uh, and then ultimately, a sleep study is, is what we need to, to either prove or disprove whether somebody has obstructive sleep apnea. So a sleep study comes in different forms. The traditional version is something called a polysomnogram, or we call that a PSG for short. And that's where somebody comes into the sleep lab. Uh, they spend the night, we monitor about eight different parameters of physical information, including brain waves, eye movement, blood oxygen level, breathing rate, arm and leg movement, all sorts of things. And by the end of the and night... Usually there's an EKG with that as well? Usually an Something, EKG, yeah. that's another yeah. one as well, because mm -hmm. cardiac arrhythmia and heart problems can be a, a, a downstream consequence of untreated sleep apnea. So we get all that data and then we look to see is their oxygen level going low, do they have five or more of those events per hour on average through the night? And if they meet those criteria, they have obstructive sleep apnea. And then it's not just primary snoring, it's obstructive yeah. sleep apnea. Which can have, I mean, almost every system in the body can be affected. And we're going to be doing a sleep apnea show uh, down the road. Stay tuned for that one. I want to keep that, wet that appetite. Let's talk about, so thank you for breaking that down. One of the challenges that I see in my practice is getting people to convince them that this sleep study, if I highly suspect obstructive sleep apnea, that this sleep study can save their lives. And so we want to get people to go. And, and I don't mean that lightly. I want people to make sure that we have something that can be treatable so it doesn't cause any downstream other, other downstream health complications. So it's super important. And then once you kind of coach people through it, I think people are out there and they say, okay, I'm willing to go take that next step level. Some people do it from home. Uh, there's such thing as a home sleep study. Uh, but I try to prefer the more of the uh, traditional one. But sometimes insurance companies will dictate how you're going to do it if you're going to go to a specific sleep lab or you're going to have it set up at home. But we'll get into that down the road. I want to get to this question. So we know that storage out there, uh, lifestyle stuff that we talk about doing, of course, weight loss. We talk about don't drink alcohol before you go to sleep. Uh, some people talk about side sleeping, but we'll get into that in a bit because I have that saved for a section. But I want to get into some of the treatment strategies because I think these are kind of awesome because people want to know what's out there. And, as I, was at, and I was at this meeting this morning. They said, okay, what's out there? And I gave them a teaser, stay tuned to the show. I'm not going to tell you at a networking meeting. I'm just trying to introduce myself. So let's get into the, some, some of the things. I think this is important. Uh, why don't we briefly break down prescription medications? Let's start there. Are there any prescription medications that are out there, Dr. Kreisman, that are used for snoring? Yes, there are. Um, those medications are not prescribed specifically for, for snoring. snoring. There's not a snoring pill, a snoring I spray. wish there was. <laughs> Millions of people wish there were. Some yeah, things I gotcha. wish there were, too. But it would be out of business, so no. Maybe yeah, so. Yeah, sorry. The, the, the medications that are out there are used to treat conditions that potentially can lead to snoring. So a great example that I see all the time, people with nasal allergies, so they have swelling in the nose. Um, so if we put them on an allergy medicine, and give them a steroid spray, uh, a topical steroid spray, which now most of those are over the counter as well, uh, that might decrease swelling in the nose, improve the airflow, 
diminish the snoring. Gotcha. So that's a that's a good example of a medication. And let's talk about some of the oral appliances. You know, people hear about these all the time. Uh, there's these commercials for these products out there that promise uh, in your snoring. Uh, what do we know about the oral oral appliances that are out there in the market? Um, things that are custom made by a dentist or things that are not really custom made. Do we know anything about those? So there are a lot of over-the-counter oral appliances. Basically, they look like modified mouth guards. Now, you have to be careful because there are mouth guards out there over-the-counter that are intended to prevent people from grinding their teeth or things Certainly. like that, which is a different, different issue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But there are some that are designed to try to keep the jaw forward, try to keep the tongue forward, and that does have merit, absolutely. That is a potential treatment for uh, primary snoring. However, um, it... it most professionals consider it a don't-do-it-at-home proposition. Um, for example, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine recommends that if one is going to use an oral appliance for primary snoring, that they do so with a custom device made by a dentist who has experience with sleep medicine and that they have periodic follow-up with that dentist because you're altering the jaw position. So if you're not careful and it's not done properly, what can happen is that unnecessary stress can occur at the jaw joint, so you can develop TMJ issues. Right. It can also change the way the teeth fit together. We call that occlusion. So that's something that should be monitored, the development of TMJ issues, occlusal problems by a, by a certified dentist, preferably one who uh, specializes or, or focuses on, on sleep dentistry, and there are many that, that do so right now. Wonderful. Well, thanks for breaking down some oral appliances. Let's get into some, some, uh, let's get into some of these nasal dilators. Um, you know, people talk about breathe right trips, and that's the same thing about breathe right people. Um, I'm not endorsing that or anything, but um, these external um, strips or external dilators are the ones that go inside the nose, the internal dilators. Do we know anything about those? What's going on? Yeah, absolutely. They're, anatomically, the nose is the narrowest part of the upper airway, and specifically, uh, the part just inside the nostril, which we term the internal nasal valve, is the narrowest part of the nasal airway. That can be dilated manually. If you put the pads of your fingers on both of your cheeks and you pull out toward the side, you're dilating your internal nasal valve. Mm. Even people with perfect nasal anatomy, if you do that and breathe through the nose, you're going to find some improvement. Yeah, I so, gotcha. Dilators come in, in two flavors. There's external dilator. As you mentioned, yeah. one of the brand names is Breathe Right Strips. You know, rigid strips that are attached to tape that flare the nostril out from the outside. Or there are internal dilators. And, and to that end, I mean, if you, if you look online or look on some of the shelves in the, in the pharmacies, you'll find, you know, little silicone nasal cones. There's some devices out now that kind of look like a nose ring made of silicon that push the, the nasal passages open a little bit more. For certain people, that can help. You know, again, trying to distinguish who's a snorer and who has sleep apnea yeah, is kind yeah, of the first you. thing. And so <laughs> you, you might be missing the boat on that if you just go to one of these over-the-counter over things. I'm not a particular fan of anything that goes in the nose as a nasal surgeon because <laughs> you can cause you bleeding, inflammation, erosion of the septum, you know. So if anything, um, you know, I would, I would say the external dilators are probably a little bit safer and there's really no risk to trying one. 
Wonderful. Well, thanks for breaking yeah. down the nasal dilators. Let's talk about some of the surgeries out there because people might hear some of this. If you go see an ear, nose, and throat doctor, you're looking up more information out there about snoring uh, for you, other options. People, some people want to know what they're getting into. What are some of the common things that people are doing now from a surgical standpoint, what you're doing? Let's talk about some of those brief procedures that, that are out there. Um, whether you want to talk about the uvulopalatopharyngoplasty, that's a long word to say. Yeah. Uh, it's a mouthful. You did well. Sure. Thank you. I mean, I mean, I would say UPPP because it sounds kind of funny. But uh, you know, from the days back at Loyola, you said, it was, "Why don't we just use the abbreviation?" But let's talk about some of the surgeries that are out there. What's the goal of the surgeries that are out there for these upper airway surgeries? Is it just to make more space at the end of the day? Is it to try to prevent more collapse of the tissues? What, what, what are, what's our kind of goal on this one? Well, it's all it's all those things. Right. I mean, if. If the area is spaces that are too narrow, like the nose, we can alter those surgically to increase the diameter and get better airflow. For some people, it's excess tissue or floppy tissue, if you will, in the back of the throat, and those are things that can be addressed. You know, again, there, there are certain procedures that have been developed for primary snoring, and then almost two dozen or more procedures that have been developed for obstructive sleep apnea. Gotcha. So if we're gonna ju just talk about somebody that's primary snoring without the apnea, one of the workhorse surgeries for that is septoplasty. Okay. So many people have a deviated nasal septum. The nasal septum is the wall-like structure that divides the right side of the nose from the left side of the nose. In a perfect world, it would be straight like a wall between two rooms. In reality, the body doesn't have straight lines. So for most people, it, it's got some S-curves, it's got little projections called spurs, and it can significantly narrow the nasal airway and cause resistance, which can lead to snoring. So. For a lot of people, they, they may be a candidate to straighten the septum and open the nose, and that might be curative. Um, if we kind of move back or further down yeah. in the anatomy, um, you get to the, the soft palate, and there's different procedures that have been developed for, for that. One of those is uh, radio frequency ablation of the, of the palate, which uses basically radio waves to cause some scarring in that soft tissue of the palate to stiffen it. You know, a bit like putting a batten in a sail. Um, similar in that thought are these things called pillar implants yes. or, or palatal implants, which are braided Teflon uh, implants that, that look kind of like a, a, a sheet or a fiber, if you will. And those are injected, air quotes for those of you listening, <laughs> uh, into the soft palate uh, after it's numbed in the office. And that can stiffen the palate and keep it from from flopping around a little. Large tonsils are another thing that can limit airway. So some adults still have large tonsils, and we can those can be removed. So those are those are some of the procedures that have been around for uh, snoring specifically. Like I mentioned, there's a lot of others that can be done for sleep apnea, including surgically altering the palate. You mentioned we call yeah. that uvulopalatopharyngoplasty. For primary snoring alone, that might be a little aggressive, but it has been it has been done. Mm -hmm. um, some of the issues with some of these surgeries, the reason why they're not typically first line for for snoring is that a lot of the studies show that people get benefit initially, maybe for a year or two. The intensity uh, at the and the, the the volume of the snoring might decrease, but long term the results don't necessarily seem to hold up. And okay. to give you an example of that, for radiofrequency ablation, um, one study uh, of 29 patients showed that uh, people that underwent the procedure at three to four years, uh, only 25% of those patients were still satisfied with the procedure. Um, 
Another 25% have sought additional therapy for snoring beyond the procedure they just had. Uh, and many people wouldn't necessarily refer or refer a friend for that same procedure. So I think that's, there's similar results for some of, the, a lot of those other snoring procedures. So, so you know, sometimes I always say like, you know, as you're breaking this down, and I love that you're breaking down the, the, but down the snoring, I always say kind of like, again, let's set the tone first. Make sure you don't have sleep apnea, and then we can go from there. Some, some of these kind of sound kind of aggressive, there's no doubt about that, but sometimes people say, well, I'm not putting on that Darth Vader mask, I'm not putting on a sleep apnea machine, and so they're willing to go down this pathway when there actually were some very less invasive things, like a very, again, a non-surgical approach that can do just, a job, do, do just fine. There was a procedure that I read about where uh, they cut out the back of the tongue after, uh, after doing a procedure, I guess it was pioneered at a university in Pennsylvania, and uh, they cut out the back of the tongue, and I'm like, whoa, time, time out. Who's talking about maybe removing a little, this were severe sleep apnea, by the way, uh, but who's talking about doing that kind of, going to that length of, of, of detail and potential risk uh, to just deal with some of your sleep apnea? I would almost say, the, the common mind in me would say, just keep it simple. Let's just go ahead and take this, do the sleep CPAP machine and call it a day. But, uh, but I just think it's just fascinating that there's so many cool innovations out there. Again, non-invasive and invasive. So thanks, Dr. Crazy, for breaking it down. I want to get into a section that we call, Is It True? And so uh, I said earlier at the beginning of the show, we do something called, I want to look at some common, commonly asked questions frequently asked questions that I certainly get asked in the practice. So I want to ask Dr. Graceman, I might do a few of these, and then we'll get into some myths versus facts, because I know you guys want to hear that. But let's set the record straight. Building trust and delivering truth. So let me ask this question Dr. Graceman. Is it true that changing your sleeping position reduces snoring? I'm going to say sometimes on that one. Please explain. We'll so people that sleep on their back, so in a supine position, uh, have a higher potential to snore. Uh, in part, if you consider anatomically, gravity's pushing everything toward their back. If you're on your back and the muscles relax, the jaw and the tongue that's attached to it and all that musculature tends to slide back and it can collapse the airway behind the tongue. So most people uh, have a higher incidence of snoring or apnea events if they're on their back compared to their side or on their front. So, you know, that gets into to some of the potential kind of low, low-tech strategies. Uh, for people that primary snore, if they seem to only snore on their back, mm -hmm. but not on their side, one thing that they could consider doing is taking an old t-shirt and sewing a tennis ball into the back of it. <laughs> it's low-tech, but if you roll onto your back, you, 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 won't, feel even, that you won't even yeah. wake up. It'll just cause you to kind of roll back onto your side. Yeah. Or sleep positioning, getting a wedge pillow, or elevating the head of the bed, or now they have these, you know, albeit expensive beds where you can elevate yes. your head. You've, most people have seen those on, the, on TV, and <laughs> they show somebody snoring, and the bed partner elevates them, and they stop. It's not, it's not always that easy, that, but that's, that's a potential option for some. Wonderful. Yeah. I'm going to take this one. Is it true that homeopathic remedies reduce snoring burden? I have to say that's a, that is not true. Uh, there's just no data. And so I just can't be, I can't, I can't be any clearer than that one. We just haven't seen data that homeopathic therapies help snoring. That's just how it is. If somebody's going to be trying to do that data, I'd certainly like to see it, but we just haven't seen published trials on people using homeopathic remedies for snoring. Would you concur with that? I would. Mm -hmm. I, I haven't seen any yeah. compelling data in yeah. the literature that, that would support Wonderful. that. Wonderful. Yeah. Here we go. I like this one. Is it, here we go. Dr. Graceman. Is it true that using a weighted blanket can stop snoring in its tracks? 
No. Please explain. I'm pretty unilateral on that because the, the main thing with snoring, as I've said, you know, a few times now is that it deals with airway, specifically upper airway resistance to airflow. So I don't see how putting a, a, a heavy blanket on the body below the area of interest would have any effect on it. So I, I think Excellent. that's a hard move. There, there we go. Here's one. Uh, I'm going to give this one to you. Why not? Uh, dust bunnies. Is it true that dust bunnies and other allergens lurking in the bedroom, like ceiling fans, window treatments, bedding, and pets can lead to snoring? I guess indirectly. It's a pretty scary bedroom you're describing right now. I don't want to sleep there. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to sleep in that bedroom either. It's like a lot of dust, a lot of allergens, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So, so say, like, let me ask you a quick question on this. So say somebody does have pet allergies and they're, and they're um, if it's true, or a lot of dust. So, but right. should, should they be allowing the, that situation, like if they have a dog, should the dog be in the bed if they have a dog allergy or things like that? So in general, yeah. um, and, and as ENTs, we also treat allergies. We test and manage allergies yep. in my sure. practice. If For people with environmental allergies, one of the primary modes of, of treatment is allergy avoidance, which sounds obvious, but for some people it's not necessarily. So avoiding the thing to which you're allergic. Uh, the room that people spend the most of their life in is the bedroom. You know, most of us get around eight hours of sleep, some a little less. So if you think of it that way, you're spending about a third of every day in one room. So if there's one room you're going to pay attention to in terms of trying to eliminate or reduce the allergens, it should be your bedroom. So if you have a pet to which you're allergic, like a dog or cat, we recommend generally that people keep that animal out of the bedroom all, all day because that dander stays around even when they're physically not in the room. Uh, and for people with dust mite allergies, keeping the bedding clean, keeping the floors and the hard surfaces clean is, is really imperative. Because if, if you have an allergen-rich environment for an allergic patient, they're going to have symptoms. Yeah. Swelling of the nose, stuffiness, that could make snoring worse, that could make sleep bad. Wonderful. Worse. Here we go. Here's the question. Is it true, Dr. Grayson, is it true that doing mouth exercises reduces snoring? It can. So what you're referring to is something that we term myofunctional therapy. Uh, myo referring to, to muscles and then the functional therapy part. So, yeah, there have been some smaller studies that have demonstrated benefit to people basically doing certain types of physical therapy to improve the muscle tone of the throat and the tongue and the jaw muscles. One of my favorite stories, uh, favorite articles, I should say, is a 2006 article that was published in the British Medical Journal yeah. uh, that showed that 25 patients that underwent four months of training with an indigenous Australian instrument called a didgeridoo had improvement in their snoring and obstructive sleep apnea compared to a control group. So I'm not saying everyone should run out to the music store and yeah. buy a didgeridoo, but that's an example of myofunctional therapy that benefiting, and that's a novel way, so I just like that article. Yeah, it's interesting. What, it's what, I, what, I, what I read about this kind of therapy on exercises, I'm like, okay, you have to like do like tongue raises to try to work the back of your tongue and lift your palate, lift your soft palate up if you can get your tongue further that way and stimulate that and give it some tone. Or there was something that I read about, oh, you should just lower your tongue into the bottom to the floor of your mouth. And I'm like, I, I don't know how to do that kind of stuff. So I think so you get some mixed signals out there, but again, we're all about telling some truth. So let's do this, Dr. Grayson. I want to get into myths versus facts because that's something that we do every week on the show. Uh, but I love that section, Is It True? That love it. But I want to get into some myths versus facts because you guys out there 
always know that we do this every week on Tiro with Dr. G. So here we go. I say this statement, and then I'm going to participate in this too, because why not? But I'm going to give Dr. Kreisman the hard ones, and I'll get all the easy ones. So here we go. Myths versus facts. So we'll do it kind of like this, boom, 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 boom. And I'll say the statement, and Dr. Kreisman say myth or fact, and then give us kind of a one-two line or maybe three-liners on why he thinks it's a myth or a fact. So here we go. Here's a statement. Sawing logs at lo that snoring show, myths versus facts. Dr. Kreisman, all snoring is created equal. Myth or fact? Myth. Please, so, please explain. As we've said multiple times, primary snoring, not a huge deal, but maybe to the bed partner, possibly atherosclerosis, necrotic arteries. Obstructive sleep apnea with snoring is a huge deal and should not go unrecognized. Wonderful. Here's one for me. This, I'm, again, I'm talking about the easy ones, everybody. Here we go. Myth or fact? <laughs> I'm cracking up because I can't even say it. Uh, myths or facts? Here we go. Women rarely snore. That is a myth. Uh, now, I will say this. More likely men come into the medical practice complaining of snoring or brought on by their bed partner, perhaps to be their wife or spouse or significant other, but women snore too. We said at the beginning, snoring does not discriminate all ages and genders. Here we go. Myth or fact, Dr. Kreisman. Um, I like this statement. I snore, but I feel fine. I don't need to get it checked out. Myth or fact? That is a myth. Please explain. The reason it's a myth is because a lot of people with snoring will progress to sleep apnea. There's two independent risk factors that are associated statistically with the progression of primary snoring to obstructive sleep apnea. One of those is time. It's just time. So that applies to everyone. Um, so with time, a lot of people will progress to obstructive sleep apnea. That progression can be so gradual and so slow that most people tend to ignore the symptoms, explain them away, or come up with other reasons. So fatigue, we all can probably come up with five reasons right off the top Easily. of our head why I feel tired today. So a lot of people tend to explain some of those symptoms like excessive daytime fatigue. Uh, they tend to attribute it to something else when in fact it could be a sign of obstructive sleep apnea. So, you know, this has been borne out in my clinical practice time and time again. I see people that don't seem to fit the physical profile they don't seem to have a lot of symptoms, but we get them in the sleep lab and we do a study, and lo and behold, they have moderate or severe sleep apnea. So just because you think you feel okay doesn't mean you're totally off the hook. You should get evaluated. I, I always like the statement, prove me wrong, and so I always try to challenge my patients to say, listen, we're looking out for your best health, and I want you to go for the study because we don't want you to have sleep apnea. I'm, I, I'm so happy when I tell people that they don't have it, but when they do have it, certainly we talk about the seriousness all the complications that can happen if it's left untreated. So thank you, Dr. Kreisman. Mm -hmm. Here we go, myth or fact. I'm going to do this one. I like this one. All right. Um, I got to pick one off this list. Here we go. Uh, sleeping pills can help. I'll say that's a myth uh, um, because sleeping pills cannot help with snoring uh, as it tends to relax the airway more and causes more constriction and uh, structures to fall into the airway. So sleeping pills, tranquilizers, anything that you do, there we typically advise against doing that. We understand people have to sleep, but if you're talking about it in the terms of reducing the burden of primary snoring, I usually say that is not the correct answer for that one. Here we go, Dr. Crayson, myth or fact, I like this one. Uh, <laughs> here it is. My bed partner just has to deal with my snoring. Myth or fact, they just have, my bed partner just has to deal with my snoring. I'm going to say myth on that. You please, can, you, please explain. You can no, we're not getting anybody upset up there. You <laughs> could convince yourself, uh, but I wouldn't try it too long, or you might not have a bed partner for a while. So, you know, I, I'm making light of it, and it, and it is, you know, kind of funny, but, it, you know, in, in reality, it can be a serious issue for a lot of couples. There's, you know, many couples 
end up sleeping in different rooms, changing their sleep patterns, maybe going to bed early to get to sleep before their partner starts snoring logs or sleeping in a different room altogether. I know a few people who do that. Um, but that can cause marital discord and problems with relationships. So I wouldn't ignore it and basically pass the buck and say it's your problem. Yeah, I don't think I, that's healthy either. I agree. It's not healthy at all. And I, and I tell you what, I treat a lot of couples in a primary care standpoint. And I will have the couple sitting down with me and they'll say, my husband or my wife, and then snores. And then it all of a sudden it's like, Rrr! so we have to just say, like, there are options out there. That's why we want to take snoring seriously. And I get my job to make sure that they don't have sleep apnea and then we can figure out to hold back or get them your way and you help out as well, too. So thank you. I like this one. We'll do a couple more myths versus facts. I like this one. Here we go. Uh, a myth or fact. Snoring can mess with your mood. That is definitely a fact. Uh, here, are we, here, When you have unrefreshed sleep, uh, unrestorative sleep, it can affect everything. So I would, would say that snoring can mess with your mood. It can mess with your ability to function the next day, your concentration, your attention, your memory, just your just general performance. And again, if you have sleep apnea, which we're trying to really point out here, that it's got to be treated. People that have treatment for sleep apnea, they start having less fatigue, uh, less snoring, of course, noticed by their, their, by their, by their partner, uh, but also they function better. So a lot of things that can be happen when you're, when you're sleeping properly and restoring. Here we go, Dr. Kreisman, I like this one. Uh, myth or fact, your dentist can fit you for a mouth guard that holds your jaw and tongue forward to keep your throat open. That is a fact. We Please covered explain. That, covered that a little yeah. earlier with the, uh, you know, the over-the-counter mouth guards. So, yeah, that's a, that's a, vi a viable option uh, for people with primary snoring. As I mentioned, you should do it under the supervision of a, of a certified sleep dentist. For that matter, it's a pretty good option for people with mild obstructive sleep apnea too that don't want to try CPAP or can't tolerate it. Um, if it's you know mild obstruction, for some people just keeping the jaw forward might eliminate the obstruction. All right, let's do a couple more of these. We've still got a little bit of time. I guess I'm going to give this one back to you, Dr. Kreisman. Here's the statement. Using a bedside humidifier can reduce snoring burden. I don't think so. I mean, I'm all for humidification, saline, because lots of people have dryness of the nose, dryness of the throat, and that can cause all kinds of problems. Maybe really indirectly, you know, it, I'll put that in the isn't going to hurt, might help category. Do I think if you run out and buy a humidifier, you're going to snore less? I doubt it. Okay, got it. I'm going to do one more, and then I'm going to do one more for Dr. Crazy. Here we go. I'll take this one. I like this one. This is a lob one. This is an underhand pitch for me. I like this as a primary care doc. Here we go. Uh, losing weight can alleviate some of the symptoms of snoring. I agree. Yes, that's a lifestyle uh, tool to go out there, especially if we're talking about any excess tissue that's sitting around the neck and certainly with the effects of gravity when you sleep and certainly in the supine or lying on your back position. But weight loss can help out with a lot. It may not eliminate it completely, but certainly we usually strive for that as a simple lifestyle uh, modification technique. Here we go. Last one, Dr. Kreisman. i got to do this one for the parents out there. I know we haven't touched much about it, but here we go. Myth or fact? Habitual snoring in children is usually not a reason for parents to be concerned. That is a myth. Please so everything we've been discussing, you know, I should mention, really applies only to adults. Uh, the pediatric population is, is different uh, in, in many ways. Chronic nightly snoring in children of any age is not considered normal. It fits into a category that we call sleep-disordered breathing. And although for adults with primary snoring, we feel that they probably have minimal to none, to no disruption of the sleep, 
the going thinking with children is that even just snoring alone probably disrupts their sleep enough to cause sleep deprivation and, and, and problems. So uh, kids with primary snoring on a nightly basis, um, that's something that should be evaluated. That's one of the most common reasons we take tonsils and adenoids out in kids that are under 10. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Grace, for breaking that down. There you go, Miss versus Fast. So we have a few minutes left and everything, and the time's gone by super fast. Like, Dr. Grace and I we were catching up and everything and just bringing you guys some awesome information, some great health tips out there. You know, certainly we're, both of us want you to guys, want you all to stay engaged in what you're doing. Uh, so I said at the beginning of the show, when it comes to snoring, or anything that we're talking about, you know, we always want people to be forthcoming with their doctors and certainly to make sure that they have the tools and the resources necessary. So I want to ask Dr. Kreisman this. Um, in the beginning, we called the, the chief complaint why people come into their office and talk about the latest with everything going on with snoring. At the end, when somebody leaves our, leaves our, our practices, we call that the assessment and plan. We tell them their diagnosis, uh, treatment strategy, and certainly, most importantly, a follow-up. So let's take the message today. Dr. Kreisman, give me a few take-home points uh, for people out there who are listening to be successful when it comes to the theme of snoring. What are some action steps? So I'm going to lay out three action steps. Please, go I right ahead, I think, is, I think it's manageable. <laughs> so the first thing I'd encourage you to do is to make an honest assessment of environmental and lifestyle factors that surround sleep. Because as we've discussed in, in multiple ways, those can impact snoring at night. So examples of those would be What's my weight status? Have I gained weight? Might that be contributing to some snoring? Do I smoke? I didn't touch much on that uh, earlier really at all, but smoking is a contributing factor to, to sleep apnea and snoring. It inflames the airway. Um, do I drink alcohol most nights before bed or some nights, or do I take sleeping pills like Benadryl? Uh, those can all impact the tone of the airway and lead to snoring. Am I tired on most days? That can be a big red flag distinguishing obstructive sleep apnea from primary snoring. And so those are the things you need to be honest with yourself about. So number one, make an honest assessment of yourself and the things surrounding your sleep. Nice. Number two, define the problem before you embark on a treatment. If you're a person that snores, don't run out after this show and get a bunch of breathe right strips and stuff to shove in your nose and sprays and this kind of thing. You know, you really ought to collaborate with your healthcare provider and determine whether this is primary snoring or whether this is obstructive sleep apnea. Um, you know, people that are, are messing around trying to just manage snoring and they haven't even delved into screening for sleep apnea, to me, it's a little akin to somebody playing with the thermostat while the house is on fire. Y yes, you might try to change the temperature that way, but you're kind of missing the bigger problem here, you know? So, so really, number two, define the problem before you start doing a treatment for it. And then number three, I know we both feel strongly about this, collaborate with your healthcare provider. There's a reason we go to school for so long, there's a reason we know all this stuff, and that's to share it with you and improve your health, and we want to work together with you to that end. So number one, make an honest assessment. Number two, define the problem. Number three, collaborate with your healthcare provider. I think if you do those three things, you'll do well. Wonderful, well thank you Dr. Kreisman. You know, here are my final thoughts on things uh, and I'll give you kind of my thing. So, uh, I, this has been awesome by the way. And so Dr. Kreisman has really eloquently put it out there like that. I'm gonna say this, you know, uh, I want action and I don't want continued inaction. You know, a lot of us can pass off snoring and just kind of move on with our lives but you have to make sure that that snoring is not something more significant. 
and we've been saying it all this time, obstructive sleep apnea. But re realize this from, from a 30,000 foot view, snoring doesn't have to be permanent. There are many op options that are out there, opportunities that are out there to talk with your physician and talk about proper treatment strategies, whether they are just lifestyle related, non-invasive, or invasive. But take that opportunity to invest in yourself and your well-being. If you're sleeping better and you're snoring less, you're going to be better at everything that you do in your life. You're going to have the mental clarity and the physical strength to do the things that you're tasked to do. So I want to thank my guest, Dr. Stephen Kreisman, uh, board-certified otolaryngologist uh, at, at Dr. Gurgis and Associates. I want you to check him out at, at www.gurgisent.com. Dr. Kreisman, it's been awesome having you on the show. Thank you, my friend, for coming on out and sharing your wisdom today. Uh, hey, everybody. It's been great. I want to read you a couple other things really quickly. Uh, and uh, as we go on today, uh, I want you to just pass this message on. You know, we're talking about this topic, but I want you to pass the message on for continued opportunity and engagement in what you're doing. You know, the most important thing is to share everything. So thank you, Dr. Kreisman. Again, you've been, if you've been listening to today's show, uh, you've been watching live here on Facebook and intellectualradio.com. This episode is produced by uh, Tiffany E.R. Gomez. It's written by Mark D. Gomez and Tiffany E.R. Gomez. Music is by the wonderful Mr. Havis. Copyright 2020 by MDG Wellness LLC. All rights reserved. Stay tuned for my next show next week, Living with Endometriosis. Hey, if you enjoyed today's show, please share. Check me out on my website, www.drmarkgomez.com. I'll catch you guys next week. Peace out.